Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussions and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Nate! It's good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, too. We're, we, it's kind of a sad day in the sense that we are done with the book of Genesis. I loved Genesis. Genesis was great. Genesis was great. I I am now a huge fan, whereas before I don't think I had any reason to be a huge fan. So I'm I'm really excited that we I'm really excited we put the work in on Genesis, man. It was great. Yeah, Genesis is one of my favorite books. If I were if I were to look at the adult the the, the entire Old Testament and, and kind of pick favorites, Genesis, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah. I think those are my favorite. Songs of Solomon. Yeah, that one's that one's entertaining. <laughs> Is entertaining the right word? Judges. J- judges gives you some good history. Okay. There's there, there's value in all of them for sure. Numbers. And and some of them get a little bit repetitive. What about numbers? Numbers is maybe not my favorite. Okay, but we'll get through it. We'll get there. Well, Genesis was awesome, man. I'm excited to see we get an Exodus. The Exodus, Moses. So let's uh, let's take so a look at Exodus. Where we're starting into Exodus, let's break this down and, and just kind of look at the book overall. Fantastic. Exodus has two main features to it. The first half of Exodus is what it's named after, the Exodus, the, the people of Israel fleeing Egypt. The second half is them building a tabernacle, a temple. So it's a it's a pretty good uh, story balance. I don't know. And, and what I like is the idea at the beginning they're running away from something, and towards the end they they switch to where they're not running away so much as now they're running towards something. And that's something Nate that you've really helped me appreciate or learn from the difference between running from something as opposed to running to something. How so? Well, because I'm glad. I'm glad if I'm glad I've, if if I have been able to add any perspective to anything, I'm I'm I would always appreciate it. But I don't. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I even know what what you mean by the running from and running to something. Well, sometimes in life, if if the reason why you're making a decision ah uh, yes is just because you're trying to get out of an uncomfortable situation yes, and you're running away from that, but not necessarily because you're trying to, to build something or, or make something or something that's drawing you or driving you forward. When you're making a decision because you're trying to get away versus trying to get to your next objective. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I do try to, I do try to make my decisions not based out of fear, but, um, because usually it's the wrong decision if it's based out of if you, if you're making a deci- if you're doing something because you're afraid of the I don't know I don't know if it's based out of fear I just whatever for whatever it's worth it's always ends up coming and biting me in the butt. Yeah, are we allowed to say butt on this podcast? Uh, we are now. Yeah, baby. Sorry for any of you six year olds that might be listening to the podcast. <laughs> It's not the six-year-olds you have to apologize to. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Six-year-olds appreciate it. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) 
Sorry to anybody else. The parents of the six-year-olds. Sorry to the parents of the six-year-olds who's now hysterically laughing in the back of the Honda Pilot. (laughs) All right, let's get into this. Go ahead. All right, sorry. And sometimes you do have to run away from something. Uh, Sometimes... Looking at this, for the best though, for not not out of fear, but out of like correct protection in your own in your own safety and health. Yeah, and, and I look at the prog- the progression and the development. So here's here's something when we look at the patriarchs coming up before Exodus and Moses, you, we've we've seen character development with Jacob, with Isaac, with Israel. We've um, as I said, Jacob and Israel, sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Enoch, and Noah, we've seen character development where these patriarchs have come from one point and and changed or developed and become somebody far greater by the end of the story. And it's impressive to me how much we have seen this idea of restoration and atonement. When we look at the Garden of Eden and the fall, and this bringing them back into the presence of God to restore what was lost, covering their nakedness and bringing them back into the presence of God. As we've seen that development all throughout the book of Ex- excuse me, the book of Genesis on a personal level, Exodus is going to take this now and character develop the nation on a national level. We're going to see Israel as a nation starting to develop. And God says in, in the Book of Mormon, he, it, it says that he can't save you in your sins, but from your sins. And this idea that you have to stop sinning in order for the atonement to take place, this, this idea that you have to leave that behind. And, and, and that's where I'd like to say this nation first has to do some running away from their, their bad habits, their previous assimilation into a foreign country and this forgetfulness of God where they have to leave some of that behind. And in this idea of seeing it play out on a national level, you can also take it and apply it at a very personal level when you see your own development. When we're trying to approach God and, and like these patriarchs before, find our way back into his presence, back through this restoration, back into the arms of the atonement, if you will, there is a fleeing that has to take place. There is a, an escape, a running away from some of the things that we do in our life. But you can't run forever, and it's not just about running away from. You have to have something to replace it, a substitute, something that you're going to, as you say, Nate, having somewhere where you're going and working at is much better than just constantly running away from something. You need to have some direction and that's where Exodus is going to, to land us with this idea of building a temple and taking this people and bringing them back to the presence of God. If it's not just this restoration and this focus and getting us back to God, then, then running away from Egypt is pointless. So let's look at the start of this with Noah. Noah, where did yeah, that come Noah's from? Back. back from the flood. Back, back from the flood. All right, let's look at let's look at the start. You really of this. do love Genesis, or I mean, yeah, Genesis, dude. I do. Love you can't Genesis. let it go. It just keeps coming and haunting me. In the beginning, not in the beginning. <laughs> I promise, we're getting there. Jason, I'm the one that's been sick all day. I'm the one that's been having the migraine all day. Are you all right? I I, I mean. 
I may not have slept much in the last three weeks. Okay. <laughs> Here, we're, we're way past the beginning. Here we go. There we go. Okay. That says that there arose up a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And this is important. When you look at the word know, again, we've talked about yada. This is to know. And no has a couple of different significances. The no in a sexual sense, the no in a familiarity sense, and the no in a covenant relationship type sense. And in this sense, obviously, the Pharaoh did not personally know Joseph. We're about 400 years after the time from Joseph. There was lots of Pharaohs between Joseph and now that knew not Joseph. So to make this point that there arose up a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph— I don't think it's just this familiarity, but rather coming back to this covenant relationship. They did not feel obligated or that they still had this covenant relationship, this responsibility to Joseph and his family, that they were no longer important. What this suggests is it's just not that a pharaoh died. Lots of, like we said, lots of pharaohs had come and gone. This is a whole new dynasty. This is a whole new approach to ruling in Egypt. No longer the Kaisos, Hyksos, Hyksos, Hyksos. So, um, so like actual Egyptians are running Egypt now, right? It could be the case. So there, there has been discussion about the Hyksos, Hyksos being the, the word for shepherd kings, that there was a time period when potentially the sea peoples or there were some peoples from the, the Canaanite regions that came in, the Semitic peoples that ruled over Egypt for a while. And after they left, the the Egyptians had this resentment towards the people of of Semitic descent. And and there is a a clear distinction between Egyptians and Semitics. You, You see that in the Bible when the Egyptians say it was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews. But you also even see that among the Hebrews when they were very selective about what wives they could take. And you look at the law of Moses and and this idea of eating with the Egyptians or the Gentiles was also an abomination on there. So these two populations did not mix. And in the ancient Egyptian artwork, you can see the Egyptians are, are very clean shaven in their appearance. They look very different where the Semites in the carvings and the inscriptions uh, had beards, very long beards, and physically appeared very different from the Egyptians. Well, when this dynasty changes, there's a change in attitude where from before they had a respect or a mutual relationship, and talking about Yadah, this idea of a covenant relationship, a treaty between these people, this, this dynasty change things sour, and now the people are very distrusting of having this large group of people, especially at their borders. And the fear is that if another Canaanite nation, and even north of Canaanite, when you talk about the Hittites, the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, and these other places in Mesopotamia, if they were to come and these Semites were to side with them, being closely, closer related to them in their background, their history, and their culture— that it would present a threat to the Egyptians, that they could be ruled again by a foreign people. They did not like it. They did not want it. It made them nervous. And it's interesting how people react sometimes to situations that make them uncomfortable because rather than trying to befriend the, these, the Joseph's family, rather than trying to treat them well and make sure that they shored up the alliances there, 
they despised him. They, they made him work hard and they treated him even more poorly. And they take the approach that they're going to kill all of the firstborn male sons. And, and this should sound familiar because this is going to be like a type of Christ. This is a very similar setting to where Christ was born and the idea that Herod was going to have the, cell, the male sons uh, executed. In here, though, the original plan, so the first plan is that they ask the midwives to, to do the dirty work. And it's very interesting how they ask them. It says, when you sit on the stools, but what they say, the stools are not the stools. In Hebrew, it's the potter's will. And it's very interesting. It's fascinating. It says that what they're telling the midwives is essentially this. Your job here is to be fashioning life out of clay. Again, go back to this idea of creation. Genesis, God created man out of clay. Adama, Adam, comes from Adama. Adama is the clay, the, the dust of the ground where he creates Adam. And they say, as you are on this potter's will, fashioning man, if it's a male, then smash the clay and start all over again and bring up the new pottery. You're, you're forming this, this, this person out of clay again until you get the, the pottery right, until you fashion a woman. And if it's a male, smash it, start all over. If it's a woman, keep it. So it's interesting the perception that the Egyptians are, are putting on the midwives and how they're requesting that they kill the male, the male offspring. And the women, the midwives, refuse to listen to the Egyptians and they continue to deliver the, the males and the females. And this, it kind of sets this up interesting in that the Egyptian perspective is that life and creation and fashioning man is not the role of God. It's the role of the midwives, the people, the mankind. They're putting the power of God on themselves, almost usurping that power of God. You see it in the sense of Pharaoh who makes himself a God among the people. So when we get to Moses coming to try to free the people, He's got to show them that they are not gods, that there is a higher power than just Pharaoh, than a higher power than the people, that, that there is a God in heaven above them more so than just the, the, them taking the power of God among themselves, if that makes any sense. Totally makes sense. And we should just, this kind of, we got to be reminded of what God did promise Jacob when he was going down into Egypt, that he was not going to be restricted by international borders yes that he was gonna he was gonna come over and um prove himself to be like the almighty god even over the egyptians and it's we get to see this during the during the uh the exhibition of snakes and various things oh yeah we're gonna have a full-on god wars it's it's gonna be I great love it it's gonna be great so after, after the, the midwives refuse to listen to the Egyptian overseers, God blesses the midwives with a house, or, and he establishes them. And, and the Egyptians say, okay, we've got, to, we've got to try a different approach. And so now the approach is every male son has to be thrown into the Nile. And you look at what Moses' mom does to handle this situation. So she already has an older son, Aaron, who's born. And perhaps Aaron's delivered by a midwife that was disobedient to the Pharaoh's request. But when you get to Moses being born, 
she does put him in the Nile. She she's actually fulfilling the the law. She is legally complying with what is required of her. But first, she hides the baby for three months. It gets to the point where she doesn't feel like she can hide him anymore. She's going to complete what's being required of her by putting Moses in the Nile. But there's no restriction on how you put them in the Nile, right? So she builds this basket, but I love how the Bible states this. They don't call it a basket. They call it an ark. And and this, again, harkens us back to the story of Noah because she takes this ark and she covers it with pitch on the inside and on the outside. And this idea that Moses is being thrown into this water, water again being an image of chaos, destruction, but what's going to be preserving him is the atonement of Christ through this, through this atonement, through this womb, through this creative process, the atonement covering it, he is going to be saved from the chaos, saved from the destruction, and preserved through, through everything. So she puts a lot of faith in the Lord in how she does this. And she's smart, and, and she's not just going to put the, the basket anywhere, but she's going to float the basket just upstream from, from where Pharaoh's daughter is prone to be bathing in the water so that she might see the baby and have compassion. So there's a lot of strategy behind what his mom is doing. And she sends her daughter out to go and watch this process. So here you have this three-month-old baby, and Pharaoh's daughter comes down into the water to bathe, and among the papyrus, the reeds, she hears this noise, she sees this basket, and she opens it up, and there's Moses crying like a baby, and and then Miriam comes out from where she's hiding, watching, and, and plays this perfectly because she says, I need somebody, she wants to adopt this child, but where she didn't birth this child, she can't naturally sucker the child, so she needs to hire a wet nurse. And so Miriam says, well, I, I can find you one among the Hebrews. So Moses' mom is going to be hired and paid to, to nurse Moses and, uh, and bring him up to the point where she can turn him over into to Pharaoh's control. So there's, there's this, this story the of the basket. Plan. Yeah, she's, she's very cunning. I like it. She's, she's fulfilling the law, but she's also demonstrating immense faith in Christ but she's also putting a lot of work in her on her own deal. Like, you know, when we talked about last week with, with Jacob asking his brothers, why are you standing and staring at each other? She's not standing and staring at anyone. She's figuring out the best she's way that she can do this. Yes. There's a reason why she's Moses' mom. Love it. Okay. Moses gets drawn out of the water. And so he gets the name Moses. And the name Moses to me is one of the most fascinating names in the Bible. Moshe in Hebrew means to draw out. And and that's what Pharaoh's daughter says, I shall call you Moses because I'm drawing you out of the water. But she didn't speak Hebrew, so it's kind of interesting that he has this Hebrew name. In Egyptian, Mo means water, and then the Sus means to to pull out of water. So Mosus means to, to draw out of water. But also Moses by itself in Egyptian means son of. And you see it in Ramses, so R-A-M, and then you have the M-S-S where you're just talking about the consonants. It means son of Ra. Tutmosis means the son of Tut. You've got these different names, or Thothmosis, 
It means son of, and usually son of is accompanied by the name of the deity. So they're saying that Ramses is the son of the great god Ra. Now you have Moses, and he is the son of who? The unknown god, baby. The unknown god, but for the for the for right now in the story, when she's pulling him out of the basket in the river, she doesn't know. She doesn't know. There is no father. There is no parent. This is this just child that appeared out of nowhere, not having a son, not having a father. And it, and you've got some symbol uh, symbolism there, tying that with Christ, who doesn't have an earthly father, who is the son of God. But as you said, Nate, the son of the unknown God, and we're going to get to that here in a bit. This is a big deal in Egyptian culture, and it's going to be a big part of the dialogue between Moses and God when he gets his calling to, to come back. So it's a fascinating name that in Egyptian it works, in Hebrew it works, and it works on multiple levels. It's very much like the scriptures when you read them, and, and sometimes very simple, very plain. It makes perfect sense, and it works. And then you have another layer that the same thing has a dual meaning or a deeper meaning. Or prophecies that sometimes you look at and say, well, that prophecy was definitely fulfilled, but it also applies to later on where it's fulfilled a second time in a second way. So having this name where he's going to draw the people out of Egypt, but also representing this son of the unknown God or this unknown birth, it's, it's I, I like his name. If that's I love it. Let's keep going. All right, moving on. Moses, as he starts to grow up, he sees... He sees a great injustice, and, and he's raised in Pharaoh's court, and, and by the time he flees, it's about 40 years old, so he's, he's had some time to be educated in, in regards to law, in regards to ruling, because he's raised in the house of Pharaoh, in regards to international law and how law works in different societies, and this, this ability to, to rule and what it means to be raised in Pharaoh's court. So having that education and that background is going to come into play. But as he's out one day, he sees an Egyptian strike a Hebrew. And, and the word that they use for, for striking means to slay, right? But it also means to strike. So when he sees him strike the, 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 the Hebrew, Moses looks to, to see if anyone else is watching. So this is not just a, an act of rage. It's not an act of, of indignation. It's, it's premeditated. Moses looks around and makes a decision to act on what he sees. And he takes and he does the same verb back to the Egyptian, which results in the Egyptian's death, and he buries him in the sand. Then... The next day, he sees two Egypt, uh, two Hebrews struggling together, and one starts to, and they use the exact same verb. So this is going to be the third time the verb is used to smite the other Hebrew. And Moses asks him, why did you smite the other Hebrew? So this word, smiting, the Egyptian smote the Hebrew, then Moses smites the Egyptian, and then a Hebrew smites another Hebrew. And then the, and when Moses calls him on it, the Hebrew says, are you going to now, and he uses a different verb, slay me. He escalates it to, to killing me just as you killed, using another verb again, just as you killed that Egyptian the other day. Now Moses is afraid because he thought nobody saw it and somebody knows. 
And in Egyptian law, if you know and you're a witness, you have to testify or you could be prosecuted for the same crime as well. And, and word is going to get out and subsequently does. Then Moses is put on to the lamb. So let's talk about this death, the slaying, the smiting. Is Moses justified in, in killing someone early on in his life? And how is it that he is able to be a prophet of God? to receive the great blessings that he does later in his life, the priesthood, and draw Israel out with with this on his history, on his past. Do you have any thoughts, Nate, before I dive into this? Nephi smote somebody. He absolutely did. <clears throat> Nephi did all right after that. Yeah, yeah, he did. Nephi, I feel, has some good legal justification in his in his court. Let me ask you this. Do you not think that Moses had legal justification in this? I think he did. I do too, but I, I, that's, what, that's the only reason I bring up Nephi. So in, in Nephi's case, when he slays him, in Jerusalem, the law stipulates that if you accuse somebody falsely of a crime, and in this case, Laban accuses Nephi and his brothers of armed robbery. And if you have falsely accused someone of a crime, and it's proven that you falsely accused them of that, the punishment is that you suffer the punishment you sought for the person that you were accusing. So the punishment for armed robbery is death. He had falsely accused them of armed robbery, and he sought to carry out judgment by sending his servants to execute them. So from a legal standpoint, Nephi, Laban was guilty of a false accusation, he sought the death penalty and was therefore worthy of, of death himself. Let's go back to Moses. This is a little bit different because there's no false accusations going on here. In the Egyptian law code, I don't see much that helps Moses in this situation. But Moses becomes the great lawgiver, and we're going to get into the law of Moses in the next few chapters, or after we get through the temple when the law is given to him on Mount Sinai. As we get to that, Moses has the, the city of refuge, the idea that if you were to slay somebody on accident, you were to strike them and they were to die. And that's what we're reading about right here. An Egyptian strikes a Hebrew, and that word strike in this case is it causes the death of this person. It is the responsibility of the next of kin to redeem or, or they, they actually call it a redeemer of blood, Goel Dom, to atone, mediate for the death of, of the person. So in this case, when you have an Egyptian and a Hebrew, Moses is a Hebrew. He is next of kin in the situation closest to him being related as a Hebrew, his responsibility is to mediate that death by executing judgment on, on the Egyptian that killed him from the law code that we're going to get in the law of Moses, if that makes any sense. So are the only reason that they use that word with the two Hebrew men fighting is just so that you can have a distinct between that and slay, like smite and slay? Is that the only reason it's brought up again with the two Hebrew men fighting? That's a good question, because... You have this smite, which also means slay, and and it and it happens with the the, the Egyptian and Hebrew, and then it's going to happen with Moses and the Hebrew, 
but it also happens between the two Hebrews, and it makes you wonder, did the Hebrew kill the other Hebrew in the argument? But he tw- he tries to change it, and, and there's, in the Law of Moses, when you talk about the city of refuge, it only works in instances of of manslaughter, not when you're coming through and premeditated murdering somebody. Okay. There, there's a difference between I, I smote somebody and they died versus I laid in wait to kill them. If you were intentionally murdering someone, you can't flee to a city of refuge. There is no there is no redeeming grace. So there it's kind of like the difference between killing someone versus murdering somebody. You can kill somebody on accident. You can kill somebody on mistake. You can kill somebody because you got carried away in 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 anger in a moment. Sure. Okay. That's so. So we're probably that's probably why they use that word in another instance, just to try to show like that it was probably an accidental death both times. Yeah. Well, or not accidental death. The intention wasn't to kill the other person in all of these circumstances. And and I think part of using the same word is saying that Moses. And what he was doing was was returning in kind the same punishment that was meted out to the Hebrew is the same thing that he responded back to the Egyptian. Okay, cool. Let's keep going. Okay. Moses has to flee because word gets back to Pharaoh. And, and here's the thing. There are two different types of punishment, uh, crime and punishment in Egypt. There's one against the person and there's a second against the state. And in here, where Moses is, is in a sense, rejecting his Egyptian heritage, his Egyptian upbringing, to, to claim next of kin to a Hebrew that had been injured and rise up against the, the Egyptian, this is looked at as, as treason, which is a crime punishable by Pharaoh himself. So this goes up to Pharaoh. It's up to his attention. And now Pharaoh is seeking Moses' death. And Moses, rather than try to go and work things out and use his claim, his house, his family, runs away and fully accepts that he is Hebrew, not not relying on the Egyptian side of it. And he comes to the house of... Jethro. Jethro. Yeah, baby. Who's actually called Ruel in this case. Oh. But but Jethro and Ruel are the same person from, from what we can tell. One might be a title, uh, Ruel being the friend of God. And and he he meets his daughters, and very similar to what we see with the patriarchs, helps water their sheep. Jethro brings them in, and, and plays the flute for him. <laughs> little Jethro Toll joke there. <laughs> you ever listen to any Jethro Toll songs? No. It's he plays the flute. Never mind. Just keep going. <laughs> so seven people in the world might have gotten that joke. So okay. Sorry, I wasn't. One so of he that. brings them in says, look, I got these beautiful daughters. And he gives him one of his daughters to marry. And and the cool thing about this, Moses is going to become the shepherd for Jethro, for Ruel. And he's going to spend the next 40 years serving him and wandering around and becoming familiar with the land. Why is this important? The people... The Hebrews, even though they were subjected with the rays of a new dynasty in Egypt to rough conditions, because of the instability, because of the quick changing of, of the nature of government, they didn't, they didn't turn to God immediately and pray for deliverance. Instead, they kind of hoped that Pharaoh would die and things would go back to how they were 
and that they would be able to keep their land in Egypt. So you think about it, the new king that rose up, by the time Moses comes along, he's got a daughter old enough to raise kids of her own. And now by the time Moses is 40, this this Pharaoh is pretty old. So as Moses is in hiding and the Pharaoh passes away, the next Pharaoh in line, the things do not revert to the way they were before, but, but it's even more rough for the Hebrews, and they realize that this change, this wind of change that blew in, is not blowing back out. And so they have to now turn to God. And I, when we talk about character development of a nation, here is a nation that relied upon the arm of flesh first. They, they trusted more in Pharaoh and their government political situation, geopolitical situation to resolve itself before they would turn to God and ask for help. By the time they turn to God and start begging for his help, Moses has had 80 years of character development, 40 years of which was raised in Pharaoh's house, understanding the legal aspects and how to be a leader, and then another 40 years being raised by Ruel in his house, who was a priest of the people. So you have this this political leader and this spiritual leader. 40 years of politics, 40 years of spiritual development, which, by the way, he was being a shepherd. So he was able to learn the lay of the land, where to take a flock to be able to make sure they had enough water to survive in the wilderness, and how to migrate large population of life across the terrain to where they needed to go. You used a nicer word than I was going to use about herding sheep, but yes, herding large populations of not the smartest people in the entire world across a huge... Sheeple? Sheeple. <laughs> no, that's even nicer than what I was going to say. You know, you, know, you know my feelings for the children of Israel and for the headache that they were to Moses during this whole situation, but... Yeah. Well, Moses was basically learning how to herd a bunch of... Yes... Sheeple. Sheeple. What Sheeple. I, what, I, what I find fascinating and, and why I see Moses as a type of Christ in this is that God knew they would turn to him eventually. And, and he was spending 80 years developing Moses before they even turned so that when they said, God, save us, he already had his Savior provided. Good call. Before Adam and Eve even partook of the fruit, Christ was prepared for the role that they'd have so that when that happened, he said, oh, he was prepared from before the foundation of the world. And, and that's, that's Moses. He was a man prepared long before the people prayed for him to, to perform this duty. Love it. Right. Next. The burning bush. Okay. I'm excited. I'm, you blew my mind with Jacob's Ladder, so I, I'm hoping that you're going to blow my mind again with the burning bush. I, I, I never cease to be amazed at the early part, Genesis and Exodus, to the reference, the temple references that we see and how temple, atonement, and the whole purpose of bringing people back to the presence of God is a very central theme to these stories. So Moses takes this flock across the desert. He's a long ways away from from Jethro's family and and civilization there in Midian. He goes to Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb, by the way, 
is where God tells him to bring Israel. And it's where Israel comes out and he's going to receive the Ten Commandments here. And there's a little bit of confusion because Horeb, in in some instances, becomes Sinai later in some other stories. And there's some confusion. Is it Horeb or is it Sinai? Some scholars have said that Horeb was probably one side of the mountain. Sinai was probably the other. I've also heard explanation that Horeb meant the, the coming to the warmth of the sun, this idea that you're traveling to the sun, and then Sinai w- w- was the word for the moon. And so they were probably two peaks on the same mountain where the higher peak being the sun, the lower peak being the moon, and this idea that they were geographically were, were very similar, the same area. So he gets to this mountain, and we've talked about climbing mountains in, in, in before, very much related to our temple discussions. As he gets here to this land, it's beautiful. It's an area where the, the, the sheep can feed, lots of pasture, very green. There's wet. He goes up into this mountain, and, and all of a sudden his eye catches this bush that is on fire. And it's not just that it's on fire. It's that the bush is not being consumed by the fire. It's not withering. It's not crackling. It's not changing. And, he's, and, and as he sees it, he almost takes a double take. And he looks back at it and says, how in the world is that bush not being consumed? I need to take a closer look. And as he steps, he doesn't see just the bush. Now all of a sudden it says he sees a malach uh, of the Lord, and it's a sent, a messenger from the Lord who's there. So go back to Jacob's experience. Now you have a messenger of the Lord. You have a very bright light that's acting as a veil to, discuss, to, to hide what's happening within this. And the bush itself is a, is a disservice. It's not this bushy green plant. The word is a bramble or a thorn or a briar. And, and often it, it's actually thought of that this was a blackberry plant. Blackberries are amazing. I love blackberries. They grow like weeds, but I love them. Okay. So think of this imagery. You have a mountain. You have thorns, but not just thorns, fiery thorns, right? Think cherubim and the flaming sword that's protecting you from a fruit that's inside of this plant. And there is a messenger that greets you there. And as you consult with the messenger, it brings you into the presence of God, because the voice of the Lord is now going to speak to him from within this plant. And, and Is this where he's supposed to take his shoes off? This is where he's supposed to take his shoes off. Interesting. Because the Lord says you are standing on holy ground. ground. Which is, again, maybe if you think again about the temple experience, but continue. No, it's, it's very much temple experience, and it's very much this, this recreating of Eden. This idea of a fruit that's being protected by these brambles or the, the, the thorns or whatever this is, this mountain that you have to come back up into it, and, and the Lord himself is there and a messenger that's going to be bringing you into the presence of the Lord and having this conversation through this, this veil of light, the, the, this discussion. So this is a very symbolic uh, meeting. And from here, God is going to call him to, to be his voice, to be his messenger, to go and get the people and restore them back to Horeb. And what is the messenger of a, or what is the role, the purpose of a prophet? 
It is to go and get his people and bring them back to the presence of God. Moses is being brought back into the presence of God, but the purpose of him doing it is so that he can go and take others and bring them back into the presence of God. And that was all Moses was trying to do. And Moses, he's like Enoch in that he says, you know, I, I'm slow of speech. I'm not sure I'm the right guy for the job. And, and I have to imagine that God at this point has an incredible sense of humor for what happens next. God says, Moses, first he says, what if the people don't believe me? How will they know that I'm sent? What do I even do? Or what, what, what gives me the authority to go and represent you and do what I'm going to do? And God says, take your stick and throw it on the ground. So Moses takes his stick and throws it on the ground. And the funniest thing is what happens next. Let me, let me just read it straight up here. Verse 3 of Exodus chapter 4. And he said, cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. (laughs) 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 What? I mean, that is hilarious. God's been grooming this guy for 80 years. You don't think he knows Moses is going to run away? Why didn't he give him a little bit of a warning like, Moses... I want you to turn your stick into a snake. If you put it on the ground, it's going to turn into a snake. No heads then up. Then Moses could have been like, nope, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. No, he just says, hey, throw your stick on the ground and see what happens. Do you think God was laughing from within that bush when Moses ran for his life? That would have been hilarious. It's it's hilarious to think about it. I, I, I don't know. I have to think God has a sense of humor throw down the stick, he throws it down, it turns into a snake, and Moses runs for his life. Maybe it's, maybe it's supposed to just be symbolic of the serpent in the garden and Moses just wanting to absolutely turn away from any sort of temptation and sin. Maybe that's what it's supposed to be. Did I just blow your mind, Jason? I, I like it. No, you don't. But I still think it's hilarious. No, you don't. It's God just, laughing. It's his, just funny. God laughing in the bush at Moses running away from a snake. I mean, your your answer is probably much better. No, my answer, I mean, I, that was that's the most harebrained answer. I, that, that just, no. I mean. But, I mean, look at the elements from the Garden of Eden. If we're talking about restoration to paradise, Eden being paradise, you have, like you say, a serpent. You have you to have, have the this, snake. You got to have the opposition, right? Yeah, and you have this tree. You have this fruit. You have God. In the cool of the day, you're hearing his voice. You, you have this light. You have the, the whole recreation uh, experience going on here. So he gets he gets his call. Mo, God tells him to pick up the snake by the tail. Moses finally collects himself, pulls it together, grabs it, and it turns back into a stick. And and he gives him this call. And we have this whole discussion about names. And he says, Moses says, "Who should I tell him, or, or who should I tell them has sent me?" And God says, "Tell them I am who I am." And what kind of answer is that? I am who I am. Where's the name in that? I mean, that is the name. I am. I I am. We know this. I am who I am. None of your business. I mean, I don't know if it's none of your business, but I, I mean, it seems like in this circumstance, it's very much his business. But how about you tell us what's the, where's the symbolism in that? <laughs> 
a good question. Moses, um, let's see, I'm going to read this. It's verse 13 of chapter 3. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and you say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent, uh, sent me unto you, and they shall say, What is your name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you unto me. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So he almost gives two names here. At first he's saying, Tell them, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And then he says, Tell them, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers. And taking Lord God again, Jehovah Elohim, it is he will cause the gods to be from your fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. He is giving them a different name here. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. What is his memorial? That for the, as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he was the one that causes the gods to be, the God maker. He is the one that has brought them from a fallen state to an exalted state to a great memorial for him for all generations forever. That is his name. That is his role. Tell him that is who sent me. And I kind of look at this. If we go back to this idea of the bramble, this branch, that Moses is going there and he is speaking with God, but Israel is not. They're removed from this. They're still back in Egypt. And if they want to learn God's name, they're going to have to come and approach God and learn that name for themselves. Moses is receiving it here at this branch, but tell them, I am who I am. This idea that if you want to know me, you're going to have to come know me. You're going to have to approach me. Mm. Moses here is piercing the veil and learning the name of God and learning who he is. If you want the name of God, you're going to have to come to me and receive it for yourself. Don't tell them my name. Tell them I am who I am, and they can come and approach and learn that name for themselves. That's fantastic insight. But there is, there is a little bit of wordplay when we talk about I am. As you said, and you see it in the New Testament, when Christ says, before Abraham, I am, I, I was, I, and, and this, this idea that he is, the, the Hayah that comes, the Hebrew for to be, is the same in I am as it is he will cause to be. So the Jehovah, the Yahweh part of his name, that verb is still there in the sense when he's saying I am as well. And this idea that he doesn't need to be created, where he causes the gods to be, he causes himself to be. I am. Not he created me. I am. I am by my own power, I am. He, Fantastic. Yeah. I love that. So it's kind of interesting dialogue there and, and, and when we're talking about names and the significance of names. And, and one last aspect of that, do we, do we have time for a, a yeah. short Egyptian story? Well, hold on. Let me ask you a really quick question first. Mm-hmm. Why do you think Moses didn't get a new name in this circumstance? Because I feel like everybody, every like prominent person up to this point kind of did. Or at least from like Abraham kind of down. 
Good question. I mean, was he just so correctly named in the first place? His name was like three names in one. That's what I'm saying. Is like, was it so flawlessly done that it was like, no, I actually totally got. <laughs> maybe it I went got from, done right the first time. Maybe it went from Moses to Moses. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I say that in jest, but I, in all seriousness, the Moshe being drawn out and, and that going to be his role, but as he's going to speak to Pharaoh, now it's the, 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 the Moses part of the Ramses idea, the, 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 the son of the unknown God, the God that he's not giving him his name. You can say Ra's name. So this is where this Egyptian story comes through. In, in Egyptian mythology... There's the goddess Isis, and she wants something from the sun god, Ra. So this is going back to Ramses, right? We're going to have this confrontation, son of Ra. Well, in this story, she creates Isis, creates a magical serpent out of the dust. So again, serpent, snakes, the, the, this, whole, this whole play. She creates this serpent out of the dust, and, and she also takes a little bit of Ra's spittle because Ra... He's, he's kind of becoming an older god, and as he walks, he drools a little bit, and some of his spittle hits the ground. So she takes that to try to take some of his power, mix it in with the clay to make this serpent, and she hides the snake along the path where he goes. Because, again, Ra is the sun god, so he, he walks this path every day from east to west, just as the sun goes across the earth. Well, as he's going along the path, the snake strikes out and bites him, and Ra can't cure himself because the snake was made from his own spittle. So he's, he's, he's wounded, and, and it's going to kill him, and he's sick. And Isis comes to, to, to tell him, to I can save you, but what I need from you is for you to reveal to me your real name. And Ra doesn't want to give it up. And so Ra will give her a bunch of titles. I, I am the sky god. I am the great god. I am the almighty. And, you know, we have all sorts of names of these gods. And he's going through and naming him and, and playing the stalling game till we get sicker and sicker and sicker to the point where he, he can't hide it anymore. He knows it's the end. So he tells her, okay, this is my hidden name. And, and it doesn't say in the story what the hidden name is because that would defeat the purpose of it being hidden. But once he reveals that secret name... Isis has the power of Ra now. She possesses his power because she knows his secret name. So in Egyptian mythology, they believed that even though the god is named Ra, that he had a hidden name, this unknown, this name that you cannot know, and that if you did know, you learned it, you could discover it, you could possess the, the power of that god by using his name, by invoking that name. So as Moses is coming in and taking this, this title of the son of, and it's, it's not known, it's not given, or as he comes back to Egypt and he states, I am who I am, I'm, I'm not telling you his name, it resonates with the Egyptians. This is a powerful God, and his name is going to be hidden in, in order to preserve his power, the power of the God. And it's going to be setting the stage between a God wars of my unknown, my my unnamed God is more powerful than, than your God, as, as they're going to be coming through and, and doing this, this story. Does that make sense? Is that enough it's down great. that? I think it's fantastic. I, I love stuff like that. That is fantastic. It is interesting because it then makes you just, again, kind of even think through a lot of the idea of like, well, we also believe that there is power in invoking the name of God and you know what I mean? Like we, mm-hmm. and, and in discovering... 
in discovering those things we it's it is interesting because i guess that's that's a not a tradition but like something that we we actually subscribe to also yeah this is a this is a very interesting meeting that that moses has at this bush it's kind of an interesting let me ask you just if, if you're done i have a couple questions i want to at least run past you unless Shoot. unless unless you're unless there's something else you want to get into before we wrap this up I have two last things to touch on. Okay, you do your things. But we can, we can, if you want to hit these, we can hit these, and I can. No, you, if you have two more things, we're we're running out of time. I just, I, I thought that we had a little bit of time, so I was just going to ask you a couple of, like periphery. We, we questions. probably do, but these are pretty quick things. I'll just run through All them real right. quick, and then you, you, you hit me. The last two things I want to talk about. One is the idea that God tells the women to borrow as much jewelry and gold as they can before they come out. Borrow with me in quotation marks. That's a terrible translation. Borrow. That's a terrible (laughs) translation. I read that story and it has bothered me for years. Why would God tell people to borrow as much gold and then run with no intention of ever giving it back? That's, That's no. No, that's not it. The Hebrew word here is is to to beg, to plea, to to make a request. They are asking for this, not so that they can take it in and in, in the false pretense that they're going to return it, but there's something else going on here. Their neighbors know that they're trying to flee. This has been a big issue. They've been trying to leave the land. Their neighbors are no under no false pretense that these guys are going to be returning anytime soon to be giving them their gold. If they are leaving, they're leaving behind their home, their property, their flocks, their cattle, their whatever they have, and who is going to be inheriting that? Their neighbors. So who are they going and asking for money from? Their neighbors. This is a story about liquidating assets. And what's happening here, the Egyptian people are somewhat compassionate to the cause. And, and it's almost, it, it, it's, it's hard to make this comparison maybe, but there are some similarities here. Uh, Putin, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the refugees, where where maybe you have one person like Pharaoh who's standing in, in a sense like Putin who is making some harsh demands or things that maybe the general populace doesn't necessarily agree with. Then you have the sympathies of some of the populace who are willing to help out or sponsor or provide for some of these soon-to-be refugees. So as they're about to flee... They're liquidating their assets, they're going to their neighbors, and they're making a request saying, we're going to go, we're not coming back, you can have our property, what can you give me in exchange? What can you give me to help as we become refugees survive where we're going? You can't take all of your crops and your food with you, but if you can take money, which takes less space or gold or valuables, then you can use it to barter and trade with other people on the way helping you make a, a, a transition from from a stationary to a nomadic people. Plus, a lot of these are going to be used in the construction of a temple later on. It's playing on the sympathy of the people and saying, we are going to be refugees. We have stuff here of value. We're going to leave it for you. What can you give us in return? This is not an instance of God commanding them to take advantage of these people and, and lie to them and borrow up to their gills in debt and run away with no intention of paying it back. Also, though, it is it is the goodwill of the Egyptians, but, I mean, also the Egyptians got to be going like, 
oh, sweet. I'm going to get landed like an insanely great price, too, though. I'm sure they took advantage of that. I'm just saying, like, I don't I don't think that this is just a sympathy, a sympathy donation by no. any means from the Egyptian either. And and that's that's the only thing is, is that I'm totally agree with you that it's I, I love that perspective because it is that is always kind of a weird thing. It's like, why would God tell them to go do this really kind of kind of creepy, underhanded. dishonest, underhand thing? And it's like, no, 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 no. But at the same time, like. It wasn't to borrow money at all. No, it was it's to a go. fire sale. That's exactly right. And by the way, nobody loves a good fire sale like us Mormons do. I'm just saying, <laughs> like, we go to we go to estate sales all the time. I mean, half of the gear in my studio, I'm sure, was sold on fire sale from some sort of an estate sale. To you know, I guess I'm just saying it's like that wasn't a charitable donation by me. I'm like, sweet man, I just got this thing at a sweet deal. Yeah. I'm just I'm just trying to be fair to everybody involved here. Yes, and, and I, I I hate that they translated that as borrow. Borrow was because never that the does right set word. the wrong tone for the for what happened. Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with fire selling your stuff. Uh, and 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 I can only imagine too that these these the the Hebrew people had multiple neighbors. And I can only imagine that to, they were saying like, "Hey, look, whoever's going to give us the best price for this, we can't ask for much because we're leaving." I'm Who's sure going to give us a good deal? Cool. It's yours. You know? So, I mean, it's so again, like, I don't feel like it's also just a charitable donation. That's all. Yeah. And maybe the last thing I wanted to hit on, and I'll, uh, I'll open up your questions here. When Moses goes back and he tells the people what's going to happen, and he says to Pharaoh, so here's, here's maybe a little two-part thing. One, God tells him, I'm just, I just want you to to request that the people go for three days journey to worship God. It's not, I want my people to establish a whole new nation in Canaan. It's just give them the opportunity to worship God. And and two, because because Pharaoh won't even let them go and worship their God, this has got to be, this relationship cannot work long term. They're going to lose their identity. It, it, it evolves into something much greater where they, they pull out all together out of Egypt and go where they're going to go. But the second point of this is when he makes this request, Pharaoh comes down on the people and, and takes all of the straw and makes them have to go search for stubble wherever they can find it and makes their work a lot harder to where they're now looking at Moses and saying, thanks a lot. You've, you've ruined our life. And the point I want to say with this is it feels like in order for us to get redemption, salvation, sometimes it has to get dark before it can get light. This idea of you know how it is. If you, if you offend somebody or you know something's not quite right, and you hate that feeling, and you want to make it right, and you want to get back to the, to the, to this this peaceful whatever. It's going to require maybe an awkward situation, an awkward conversation, or having to go to a bishop and 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 confess can scare the heck out of you. It, it brings this dark, this fear that that has to go through. But as soon as it's done, the light is on the other side. And it's kind of cliche. They say the night gets darker before it gets light. But I, I see that here with this people, this idea that they are going to be pulled out, they're going to be saved, but before that can happen, things are going to get rough. And and they do. It happens to us in our life all the time. That's a good that's good. I I love that and my my first mission president told us a story about his youngest son that 
like wiped out on a skateboard or a bike or something and had got a gun- bunch of gravel and dirt and junk in his lower lip. Ooh. And so they take him, and it was bleeding all over the place, so they take him to the emergency room. With the file brush. And they, that's exactly right, is they <laughs> coil out the file brush. And they said, you know, they had to they had to work out all of that stuff from his lip in that open wound with the file brush. And they said, then they stitched it up after, obviously. But they said, you know, obviously, had you stitched it up without doing the hard part about it, had you not dug all of that stuff out, but the point of that was too, though, is, is that that's temporary, right? Is mm-hmm. that is that that's kind of the lesson to even be learned from that, which is, yes, there is dark before the light, but, but, the nature alone continues to just give us that example over and over, which is, but without fail, here is the light after the darkness, right? Absolutely. And so even though it's temporary. And this is, again, just to add a final thing to this, uh-huh. it's funny because I, I was talking a, 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 to a friend about this just, I think, literally last week, like just recently, about how I've I've just learned through the years of experience in my business, like you just have to have hard conversations with people. That's It's just 100% part of the job. And it's a part of the job that so many people hate, but... I've just, it is funny because it's just, we just, you know, we joke about the idea where I'm just like, ah, I just embrace it at this point because I know that it's better just to like rip that Band-Aid off than it is to just let it fester and drag out, right? Yeah. But anyways, my the only reason I say that is to say life does present those unfortunate moments, but if you can somehow have perspective to go, yeah, it is going to hurt, but just remember that it's temporary and it's better in the long run because it won't just be something lingering, festering, and then turn into something bigger that also still has to be taken care of in an even more painful way. Well, and can we take that back to the blackberry bush and the idea that the blackberry itself is being protected by thorns that you might get scratched up? And approaching God, it can hurt. Uh, you look at his wrestle with Jacob. You look at what it's taken for these patriarchs to get where they are. It's, it's a painful process. There's something about that that really makes that shortcut look good. Healing. You're right. And, and, and we think the shortcut's the right way. Christ says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And you're looking at those, those thorns in the blackberry bush, and you're like, I don't know, that doesn't look so easy and light to me. But when you compare it to the shortcut to try to get around the bush to the berry, it's always longer, it's always harder. And you're like, you know what? You were right. That, that yoke was a lot easier than what I decided to do on the side. But maybe the reason why we take the shortcut so often is because of the darkness that precedes the miracle or the light that, that intimidates us or scares us down that, that path. Yep. Excellent perspective. As always, Jason, thank you so much for your preparation. We are out of time, so we're, gonna, we're, we're past time. So uh-huh. I'll get to my question. I'll get to my question another time. Real quick, how did nobody just question that Pharaoh's daughter just has a random child now? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. All right, well, that's it for this week. Um, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about next week? The plagues. Oh, baby. And Let's go. Yeah, the God War, st- staging oh, it up. Baby. Ramses Let's versus Moses. Go. Okay. 
Well, um, again, Jason, I appreciate all your hard work. Thank you guys all for listening. If you have any questions, please send us an email or text us uh, if, if you have our numbers. But I will not be giving out our numbers right now. But I will give out our email <laughs> address, and that is hi at weeklydeepdive.com. We do appreciate getting your questions. We love going over them. We do appreciate getting feedback. We um, always appreciate we've been getting a lot of fantastic emails and just, um, you know, messages from friends and family. Appreciate you guys listening, and and thanks for your awesome feedback. Um, Until next week, see ya. See ya.